The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. We're starting to see some of these funny things where, you know, the advertising model or the advertising algorithm is maybe a little bit off. You know, that, that poses potentially reputational risks for the, the advertisers if they don't like the hosts that they're getting attached to or vice versa for the hosts if they don't like the advertisers getting put on their shows. And then, you know, we do end up in this world where there are some companies that are jumping in and saying, hey, there's a profit to be made here. But then they open up another can of worms in terms of the content moderation space that previously, you know, somebody like Apple could skirt around a little bit. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 13th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. And this week on the podcast, we're talking about, well, podcasts. Valerie Wirtschafter and Chris Meserol, our friends at the Brookings Institution, recently published an analysis of how popular podcasters on the American right used their shows to spread the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. These are the same issues that led tech platforms to crack down on misinformation in the run-up to the election and afterward. And yet, the question of whether podcast apps have a responsibility to moderate audio content on their platforms has largely flown under the radar. So why is that? Evelyn Dueck and I talked through this puzzle with Valerie and Chris. We discussed their findings about podcasts and the big lie, why it's so hard to detect misinformation in podcasting, and what we should expect when it comes to content moderation in podcasts going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 13th. Podcasts are the laboratories of misinformation. To get us started, I thought we might just set out kind of the, the headline summary of your research. In a nutshell, what did you set out to research and what did you find? So this research project that we're talking about today is part of, I think, a broader look into the misinformation challenge in the podcast ecosystem. So in looking at these prominent political podcasters, we actually found that after the election, more than 50% of all episodes in our sample were spreading misinformation about the election tied to the big lie. Yeah, so I just want to pick up on that last point in particular, just to sort of clarify, because this is something that always happens whenever I hear uh, research or studies about the levels of mis and disinformation in a certain data set or uh, on social media. The the question becomes, how do you define mis or disinformation and how broad is the the study? Because, of course, if we could all agree what was mis or disinformation, then everything might be a lot simpler. And so I think one of, you know, the key methodological points for you and uh, potentially really useful in, in answering that question is how you define mis or disinformation, um, but it is also you know, relevant for understanding your findings. So can you talk a little bit about exactly the kinds of claims that you were looking for that were classed in your study? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point and a really big challenge in this space. We tried to be extremely careful in our definitions here. So what we did was we took these transcripts from episodes that occurred during the period in question which um, 
more broadly was from the convention in August to January 6th. And we we created a dictionary based off of fact-checked claims, common terms associated with election um, fraud, like election integrity or voter fraud or election fraud or things like that. And we searched the transcripts to determine whether the transcript mentioned this term at all. And then from those, we did a, a manual review with at least two coders to look at the context around the claim to determine whether it was endorsing the claim, whether it was promoting it without additional evidence or skepticism, or whether it was refuting the claim. So we definitely um, wanted to be very careful in that classification because, as you mentioned, it is a it is a complicated issue to define, and um, it's really important to make sure that we're uh, confident in the claim that we're making. If I can also uh, come in on that, I mean, one of the things that we really took a lot of time uh, to try and sort through are all of the podcasts that were talking about other people's claims of election fraud, right? There were, there were a lot of uh, podcasts and stories about election fraud, uh, and we explicitly didn't want that kind of claim to be in our data set. So what we really tried to hone in on was, you know, was the podcast host or, and I should also clarify, we were looking at guests as well. So you know, if a guest came on a podcast and really kind of put forward or advanced uh, a misleading narrative about the election, uh, we would code that as well. Um, but what we, were really, what we were really looking for were those cases where somebody was advancing a claim that the election was illegitimate without any kind of substantiated basis for making that claim. That was what we were, were trying to capture. And, you know, unfortunately, we found that it was really, you know, uh, rife uh, in the podcast space. Um, both immediately after the election, as you might expect, but then, you know, continuing on even after a lot of the due process uh, had played out and a lot of the, you know, allegations of voter fraud had been investigated and found to be unsubstantiated. These claims still kept reappearing uh, over and over again uh, within the podcast ecosystem and not just the podcast ecosystem. The other thing I'll, I'll kind of uh, foot stomp in what Valerie raised was these were the most popular podcasts. So this wasn't just kind of fringe podcasts that we were looking at. We were looking at the podcasts that were taken from the, the top 100 podcasts and Apple podcasts. Um, and even these, we found just extraordinarily high rates of claims of electoral fraud or other claims that were portraying the election as rigged in some way, even though obviously there wasn't significant evidence to corroborate that. So why podcasts? I mean, obviously, uh, we, we all have an incentive, um, Evelyn and I, to you know, argue that podcasts are really super duper important because we're, we're hosting one. But I do think it would be useful to set out just, you know, what, what is the audience base for podcasts? How many people were, were listening, both, you know, to, to the ones that you were looking at and in general? Is this a big slice of the population? That's a great question, too. And, you know, what we've seen in recent numbers, it's a bit difficult given the number of ways you can listen to a podcast to get a gauge on audience. But, you know, I think around 40% of all Americans listen to a podcast monthly. So that's like 116 million people. And I believe that, you know, for clear reasons, you know, people have been at home more, people have been maybe in need of some audio or things like that during the pandemic, the, the number of people listening to the podcast, podcasts across the board has grown exponentially in this uh, over the past few years. But in terms of our audience for the, the episodes we're looking at, the, the challenge there is that unfortunately we don't have 
those episode metrics, but some of the shows have, you know, massively large audiences. So Chris, correct me if I'm wrong here, but like, I think the the Ben Shapiro show says they have about 15 million listeners per month and um, Verdict with Ted Cruz is also in there, which has a ton of listeners too. So we're talking about audiences in the millions. And then, you know, when we are able to get a gauge on metrics through, say, you know, a show um, cross-posts an episode on YouTube, that also is in the millions. And so, you know, we're looking at the, the tens of millions in terms of engagement here. And so it's, it's a very wide reach. I find that statistic about 40% of Americans absolutely incredible, in part because I think maybe, you know, thanks to the, the legacy of Serial and the, the role of, you know, public radio and making podcasts really blow up, I think there, there's a perception that I definitely had of, of podcasts as something that are, are niche, you know, not something that gets a huge audience, which is obviously changing. And I think your research is a reminder that it's not obviously the case. Could could you give us a sense of what the most popular podcasts are that you included in your research? You mentioned uh, Senator Ted Cruz's show, the Ben Shapiro show. What are some of the others? Yeah, so we're looking at, you know, the shows that were considered popular in November 2020. And so among that group, you know, we have Bannon's War Room. We have... Um, the Sarah Silverman show, we have Pod Save America, we have the Megan Kelly show, uh, the Rush Limbaugh show, which is now the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show. So it's still around. Um, Mark Levin's podcast, Louder with Steven Crowder. So there's tons of newer, younger hosts, and then some familiar names as well that show up. But, you know, the the space is is really wide. And one of the things about podcasts is really that these newer voices can get in there and they can grow massive audiences that sustain in popularity. So many of the shows that I just mentioned continue to be on Apple's top 100 list over a year later. So I think that's a really interesting point um, that I want to pick up on as well, because, you know, we should be thinking, I think, about the different kind of characteristics of different media. Uh, it's not like a podcast is the same necessarily as a YouTube video or a post on Facebook. And one of the things that your post talks about when you're uh, talking about why podcasts might be a powerful vector for disinformation is because of their intimacy and scale. And we've just talked about the scale, which like Quinter, I was quite surprised by some of the statistics. Surprised and, and pleasantly uh, you know, pleased that we have such so much untapped market uh, for podcast listeners. Um, but what do you mean by intimate? What's intimate about podcasts? And, you know, do I as a podcast host need to be a little bit more careful about the signals I'm sending out? Like, what is it about the medium that makes it different from other media? I think you kind of just touched on a really important point, which is that podcasts capture people's attention in a slightly different way, right? That they're, it's a voice that's literally in your ear that you listen to, you know, in many cases, you know, you subscribe to a podcast series, not just a particular episode. So you're hearing the same kind of host uh, over and over again, over a period of time. It's a voice that you're listening to, you know, you might be doing something else, but you're kind of able to process the information in a way that's a lot harder to do with other media. And then I think kind of uh, you start to, you know, not just give more attention to it, but you, you can kind of develop a relationship with a podcast where you begin to lose sight of the fact that it's actually this mass media and it, it starts to feel a little bit more intimate and kind of personally directed. 
Um, and I think that's part of what makes podcasts such an effective vector for you know political persuasion of all kinds um, is that audiences of podcasts tend to listen to their hosts and build up a kind of trust in that host's voice um, over time that's really hard to replicate in other media, uh, especially, you know, you know, if you, if you wanted to compare a podcast to, say, kind of, you know, Twitter or Facebook or something like that, it's much harder to build up that kind of sustained trust uh, over time uh, compared to a, a podcast format. I want to go back to a point that Valerie was making earlier about just the difficulty of finding statistics about how many people podcasts are are reaching um, and how many listeners they have. Like, can you talk a little bit more about that, Valerie? Like, what? Why is that so hard? Who has the data? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the podcasters certainly have data on how their what's called an RSS feed, how their shows through this feed are performing, and they can get those statistics on their specific shows. But, you know, it's not released by the major players in the space, the Spotify's, the Apple's per se, unless it's like a, a broader summary statistic, like say 41% of Americans listened to a podcast in the past month. And so getting that episode level data is is not necessarily public. But the other challenge there is that you know, I mentioned Apple, I mentioned Spotify, but there's tons of other places where an RSS feed can be plugged in to an RSS reader, and then somebody could download the episodes and listen to them. So with podcasts, it's not just that there are two platforms that maybe are vying for the podcast audience. Uh, and by and large, they do cover a lot of the podcast audience, but there are tons of places where people can listen to this type of content. And that that's kind of due to this decentralized architecture that is this podcasting landscape. And so it makes getting a, a grasp on these numbers a bit more challenging. And so as part of that as well, one of the things you talk about is cross-platform reach. So um, before we dig into that, what do you mean by cross-platform reach when we're talking about podcasts? So I think here, you know, what we talk about in that case is really about the way that a show might spread on, say, a YouTube versus uh, an Apple or, you know, the various places where shows can can show up, whether it's, you know, being posted on a Twitter feed or things like that. And so there is the potential that, you know, a tweet is a tweet when it is on Twitter, but a podcast can be placed in a variety of places with the same content. I think this is such an interesting and important point uh, that generalizes um, as not not just about podcasts, but this, it's a great example um, because although we tend to talk about content moderation sort of platform by platform, it's actually an ecosystem problem. And you know, people disseminating the information don't think of it in such stovepipe terms, right? Like they create content and then want to get it out and will use um, whatever avenues are open to them. And you know, for example, if you look at Facebook's most widely viewed content reports, the top domain linked to on Facebook is normally uh, YouTube. So it's this thing of, um, you know, YouTube videos being uh, cross-posted to Facebook. Um, and I'm sure that's the case with podcasts as well, or I know it's the case, you know, and very often a lot of podcast feeds can just be the audio files from a YouTube show. And so, you know, there's this question of, although the miss or disinformation might be on the podcast, uh, whose problem is it when it's posted on Twitter or posted on YouTube or vice versa? How do we think about uh, the responsibility of the different platforms 
in content moderation. I'm curious if you uh, have any thoughts on that and sort of how you, what you saw in terms of the, the pipelines of how information generally spreads between these different platforms. I, I think that's a kind of an all important point is, you know, how podcasts spread across platforms. And in particular, I think one of the reasons we wanted to look at this project to be perfectly candid is that it feels like there's actually a bit of a discrepancy in the content moderation regimes across different platforms. And I think podcasts, you know, if a podcast is being shared and uploaded to, you know, Twitter or uh, Facebook, if it's uploaded onto those platforms, it's going to have to conform to uh, the content moderation guidelines of those platforms. Um, But very often it's coming to those platforms from a separate podcast library uh, or kind of one of the, the podcast hosting services that then gets piped out to you know, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or, um, you know, again, it could be something like, uh, you know, shared on Twitter or Facebook. And unfortunately, that part of the ecosystem, you know, the, the platforms that aren't really used to viewing themselves as uh, web hosts that have to moderate content is really underdeveloped. Um, and so the, the content moderation guidelines for those sites, uh, I think, is much different. And it allows for these podcasts to emerge and take root that aren't really being governed or, or moderated in the same way as we might expect them to be on a, on a place like YouTube or Facebook uh, or Twitter. And I, I think one of the really important, you know, findings, and, you know, hopefully this, this piece that Valerie and I did can, can shed some light on this, is that just how kind of unregulated and ungoverned um, the podcasting ecosystem is, or at least unmoderated. And it, even in extending to you know, relatively large companies like, you know, for example, Apple, which um, is a very uh, large and well-resourced company, yet I, I don't think really has developed the kind of content moderation guideline and practices that you would see uh, companies of similar scale, whether that's kind of uh, Google or Facebook or other big tech companies, you know, they've, they've generally developed those kind of guidelines, whereas uh, the major players in the podcast ecosystem haven't yet. And I, I think it's Um, something that hopefully will uh, start to mature uh, over time. I also wanted to ask about the possibility of cross-pollination between radio and podcasts. And so the the New Yorker recently ran a really striking profile of Dan Bongino, who is a popular far-right podcaster and also has a radio show that, according to the New Yorker, gets 8.5 million listeners a week, which puts him up there in, I think, the top five or ten Uh, talk radio hosts. And the profile included a really striking note that according to one market research firm, and I'm quoting here, for every hour that Americans listen to podcasts in 2021, they listen to six and a half hours of AM FM radio. So I'm I'm curious uh, whether you have a sense from your research of to what extent claims made on radio get funneled back into podcasts and vice versa about the big lie, whether because the podcasters are the same as the radio hosts in the case of Bongino, for example, or because, you know, these are media figures inhabiting the same kind of political and media ecosystem and they're swapping these claims back and forth from one another. Yeah, I mean, you hit on a really interesting blurry line between this podcasting space and the sort of traditional talk radio space that, you know, I think is definitely something we are planning to parse out more and distinguish more. You know, in in my sort of framing of the two or differentiating of the two, I think of a podcast as sort of an audio file that is downloadable and listen to able to listen to offline separate from 
being in the, in the car or listening to it actually on an AM or FM station. Uh, and so that's the kind of distinction that I've tried to draw. But, you know, people like Ben Shapiro, people like Dan Bongino, who also was in our sample that we looked at in the, the most recent article that we released, you know, they, they do have radio shows. They also have their podcasts. Often there is quite a bit of cross-pollination in terms of the ideas. You know, sometimes the, the show is entirely the same. And so, you know, that that's definitely uh, an area of significant overlap for sure. So as a podcast early adopter, um, you know, I was a, a podcast listener before they were cool. Um, if they are cool now, I don't know. I, I've been on the podcast content moderation reckoning watch for ages because I will be, you know, reading all these stories in the in the paper about um oh, Facebook or Twitter didn't, you know, didn't moderate this particular tweet or post or whatever. And then I'd be listening to my podcast on my morning run or whatever and hearing completely wild things. And no one really uh, talks about it and talks about uh, content moderation problems in podcasts. But wherever you have users generating content, you have content moderation problems. And we can think of some, you know, fairly high profile examples over the past few years where podcast apps have stepped in. I'm thinking uh, Alex Jones and um, Steve Bannon in, in certain circumstances, but sort of as you were saying, Chris, most of it is fairly hands-off and unregulated. And we might come, we will come back to some of the reasons why that might be uh, in terms of the infrastructure set up and also, you know, whether we would want the same rules across all the platforms. But but I'm just sort of wanting to get a bit more of a picture of how much content moderation there is in podcasts beyond those high profile examples. So is this something that's happening at all regularly or is it really only that content moderation on podcasts happens when there's sort of sufficient public outcry, sufficient public pressure that, you know, certain podcast hosts or certain uh, episodes get elevated into public consciousness and then the tech companies feel an obligation to respond? Or is there sort of this long tail of content moderation on podcasts that is happening, even if we don't really hear about it? Yeah, so I, I would say that there is some happening, and I, I uh, to to clarify that it, it, the space is not entirely ungoverned, right? There there are kind of, I think, two really straightforward ways in which content already gets moderated on podcasts. One would be uh, for you know hosts that do something really incendiary, maybe not illegal, but incredibly incendiary, and just pose an enormous brand risk to a company like Apple or Spotify or another major podcast host or a distributor. Uh, and they just decide, you know, that the stakes uh, of you know, keeping this person around uh, or their podcast around are just, it's, it's too high uh, relative to, you know, our other commitments or our other policy commitments to free expression or their policy principles. And so that's one avenue is just the, the, you know, the case where there's a host that poses a, a really strong brand risk and they'll, they'll act quickly. The other would be, you know, it, there are cases where content is against the law, right? And so you're not going to really see Islamic State content kind of flowing through, or you shouldn't anyway, uh, flowing through, you know, Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Um, and the reason is that there's material support laws, right? Um, uh, these companies need to monitor for that. And if, if there's content like that found flowing through their platforms, they need to take it down uh, just legally. Uh, and they've developed infrastructures and, and apparatuses for doing so. That said, you know, there is a, a material difference, I think, uh, that we haven't really hit on yet that I think is really worth exploring, which is that uh, between kind of podcasts, let's say, and user-generated content on Facebook or YouTube is that, 
you know, Apple, for instance, um, does not host the podcast on any kind of Apple infrastructure. Instead, they link out to another source of the actual uh, podcast, which, uh, which is then downloaded into your app. Um, so they are not actually hosting the content, which means uh, they tend to view themselves as more in the space of a search engine provider uh, like you know, Google Search or, or Bing, where they are kind of providing uh, a distribution mechanism to content that resides elsewhere. But Apple themselves does not host them. And so as a result, you know, there is, I think, rightly, uh, an important distinction to be made with respect to you know, content moderation, um, where Apple and other kind of major podcast hosts or major podcast apps think that they should kind of moderate their content differently because all they're doing is distributing the content. They're not actually uh, hosting it. And I think one important, really important point to make here is that the content moderation debates that emerged around social media and that have kind of gone on for almost 15 years now, most of those debates really started out with the question of, you know, should we keep this piece of content up or down? Should we ban it or remove it? And then over time, we've seen those debates really emerge or really mature rather uh, to become questions of not just whether the content should stay up or down, but should it, you know, how much distribution should it get? What kind of guidelines should we put in place for, you know, whether a piece of content should be not just kind of made available or, you know, there shouldn't just be a pointer to it, like in Google search, but there should be an active like recommendation of that content in the way that you'll see in kind of a, a recommended uh, content sidebar on, you know, uh, YouTube or other platforms. And so, with Apple and podcasts, they're only in that kind of distribution space. Um, they're only in the kind of recommendation space. Uh, and as a result, the, the questions that they need to ask themselves are not, should we ban this content uh, or take it down from the web? Because they're not actually the ones in a position to do that. The question is, you know, should they be in the position, A, of you know, keeping the podcast in their app at all, in which case they'd, they'd point users to another URL that they would download it from, uh, so that's one question they need to wrestle with. And then the second question they need to wrestle with, you know, most of these apps have recommendation features um, like Apple's top 100 uh, recommended podcasts, for example. And they need to ask themselves, you know, should the criteria for whether or not a podcast be in that you know, recommendation uh, setting, um, you know, is that different than the criteria that we should have for whether or not we should distribute this uh, podcast at all? And those questions are ones that I think even though you know we've seen you know Apple and others uh, begin to take down you know Alex Jones or you know Steve Bannon was removed um, at one point by by YouTube, those questions still I don't think are quite at the same place of maturity as they might be in other platforms, and I think that's where there's a lot of room to grow. I would also uh, make one exception to to Chris's um, point about them being a bit more search engine esque. The one exception there is uh, Spotify and Spotify's exclusive content. So by creating sort of exclusivity around their podcasts, particularly I'm thinking about like the Joe Rogan experience, which is, you know, I would say the reason that I started thinking about this space as a vector of misinformation more broadly, but something like the Joe Rogan experience is unavailable elsewhere. And so I cannot tap into Joe Rogan's RSS feed and get the same amount of content or the same content that you can on Spotify because Spotify is actually producing and hosting that content there. And so that gets into sort of, I think, maybe more familiar content moderation conversations. It allows Spotify to obviously have 
a very, very popular podcast exclusively and drawing listeners and subscriptions and things like that. But it does open up a space for them to to be uh, held responsible for the content that is in that podcast because they do directly host it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point when we're talking about, you know, the the arc of content moderation on podcasts over time. Uh, it's also dependent on the arc of the business model and the way in which podcasts uh, have been monetized over time, because it's not just the increased attention to content moderation more generally over the past half decade, although it is that too. I think it's this idea that podcasts, the market was expanding, more and more people were listening to it. And so then platforms like Spotify got involved uh, much more sort of in a hands-on way in terms of trying to make it profitable. I mean, Apple Podcasts, I think is one of the like, I mean, I don't know, I'm not a, a, an entrepreneur or a venture capitalist, but it seems to me like one of the most untapped sort of opportunities to, that they missed because it was just sort of sitting there as the only really mainstream podcast platform um, before podcasts took off and then they didn't really do anything. But at the same time, if it is just this kind of really hands-off passive search directory, maybe um, they can justify having much less of a, a, a content moderation role as opposed to once they're doing these things like recommending or trying to monetize. And I'm, I'm just curious what you think of that role of money and monetization. Like, are you seeing podcasts becoming much more of a business? Do you think that that's part of the story here? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is also a really fascinating space in podcasting. You know, one of the things that we do have access to when we get these transcripts is the advertisements at the time of download. And so what we can see is who the advertisers are. And this is now, I think, a $1 billion industry is advertising on podcasts. And so we can see whose ads get either dynamically inserted or baked into these podcasts for the reader or for the podcaster, say, reading a little prepared thing or organically placing it. That's kind of the baked in model. But we're transitioning to this dynamic model based on searches, based on maybe perceptions of who the listener might be. But then that gets into a really funny space because you get these mismatches. And so what you, you know, I think there were a few articles recently about sort of environmental podcasts that the hosts got very upset because there were oil companies being advertised on their podcast. And so, you know, the business model is, I think, you know, one of these things that's evolving while the plane is in some ways mid-flight. And so we're starting to see some of these funny things where, you know, the advertising model or the advertising algorithm is maybe a little bit off. You know, that that poses potentially reputational risks for the, the advertisers if they don't like the hosts that they're getting attached to or vice versa for the hosts if they don't like the advertisers getting put on their shows. And then, you know, we do end up in this world where, there are some companies that are jumping in and saying, hey, there's a profit to be made here. But then they open up another can of worms in terms of the content moderation space that previously, you know, somebody like Apple could skirt around a little bit. 
Yeah, ads and ad tech are always the big untold story and driver of so much of this. Like you said, maybe content moderation becomes more of a problem for the platforms because their actual customers is, are not the downloaders and the listeners, but the advertisers who don't want to appear next to um, you know content that's that's damaging for their brand. And it's been fascinating to listen to the sophistication of ad tech in the podcast space slowly grow over time. Like when I used to listen to podcasts back in Australia, I'd be listening to, you know, all of these American shows and hearing uh, ads for products that I could never, uh, never get my hands on where, or, or, you know, concerts or events uh, over in the States. And now when I go home to Australia, I'm listening to an American podcast, whether it's like, you know, the daily or um, the, the lawfare podcast, for example, such a great listen. And he, all these Australian voices jump in in the ad breaks, um, telling me about local products, because that, that, that sort of targeting capacity that wasn't really there before, uh, has been developing. And then of course, once you have targeting, uh, all of these other issues come along with it. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing to watch. Valerie, you'd written before about the particular challenges of detecting misinformation in podcasting, and you'd set out, uh, a number of reasons I think for about why despite the fact that podcasts have such a, a large reach and that the industry is sort of getting increasingly sophisticated, there's still so much mis and disinformation and it's it's largely escaped attention. Could you walk us through the reasons you identify there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so there are many reasons. Um, I, I put forth four and I think the article you're referencing, you know, one of those is really that so podcasts are kind of this new media type of uh, ecosystem where anybody can sign up to create a podcast as long as they can have an RSS feed and anybody can really get an RSS feed these days. So anybody can be a, a publisher, very similar to a Twitter, very similar to a Facebook. But unlike Twitter and Facebook, there's not that dialogue that happens potentially. So a lot of misinformation, Facebook relies on it, Twitter relies on it, they rely on the users to report things. And for podcasting, that sort of dynamic relationship is absent. There is no conversation with the host. And so, you know, there are ways to report content, but they're kind of uh, opaque, they're a little bit unclear what you should be reporting things as, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a lot more difficult for the audience to play that kind of conversational role, the kind of gut check of saying, hey, that's not true or something like that, right? There's no ratio on a podcast, for example. You know, another another reason is really just the nature of the medium. From a research perspective, uh, we're talking about maybe hours of audio. I mean, a Joe Rogan podcast can be three hours, something like that. And so what we're working with here is massive amounts of text that are that's really hard to parse. And it's kind of like searching for um, like a needle in a haystack in some ways, because you're looking for a really small piece of content, maybe, uh, and part of a much larger set of spoken words that may not have um, any issues with it. And there's just a, a maybe a small piece that um, is spreading some kind of misinformation. And so that that's a challenge, particularly from a research perspective, where a lot of recent research identifying the effects of misinformation is really looking at sort of suspicious URLs. And for obvious reasons, podcasts do not have URLs. And so that method kind of goes out the door. And so there's sort of the, the technical component of that, which gets a bit more 
bit more challenging when one, we're working with audio and two, we're working with long audio. You know, another reason that I outline is really uh, that there isn't and, and there are exceptions to this. And I think we're starting to see it a little bit more as people pay more attention to this medium is that there's less virality. And so things don't necessarily travel as quickly, but that doesn't mean that they don't have broad reach. And so we, we don't necessarily see it or it doesn't bubble to the surface all the time, but millions of people may be listening to this content. And similar to what we had talked about previously or earlier on, there is that level of trust, that level of intimacy, that power uh, in that relationship between the podcaster and the audience that, that may make some of these claims really stick. And then, you know, the last reason I think we also kind of hit on is that we're not dealing with, with serial. We're not dealing with this American life. Back in, I think, 2005 or so, people predicted that the podcasting space would be dead in a few years. And so I think there is really a, a perception challenge among uh, people who might be inclined to research this space. This isn't just the sort of serial stories or things like that. We have actually, the, the space has evolved dramatically and there are tons of people listening to this podcast and a wide variety of different types of content. And so it's really not this sort of dying medium as previously predicted by people who might have been inclined to actually look at it. I think the point that you're making about how, you know, the claim or the dis or misinformation or the problematic content one way or another, whatever rule it is um, or whatever kind of content, that it could be, you know, a very small snippet in a very long episode is really uh, an important and underappreciated one. Uh, and in particular, like the, the lack of shareability is, is really interesting. Um, I think it was This American Life released an app or a functionality where you could clip parts of podcasts and share them to various social media platforms and things. And it just didn't take off because it's so laborious and it just doesn't, um, it, it doesn't work. It's not how people want to consume that kind of content. It's, uh, it, it, which makes it really, really different. And, but also, like you say, methodologically for researchers, much more involved and, and hard to find the, the needles in the haystack. And I'm wondering if that's changing because I'm sort of imagining you with these, you know, copious uh, transcripts um, that you had to comb through. How good is the tech for, like, how good are the transcripts? Like, are you having to then edit the transcripts before you can do your kind of research? Or is the technology, I, I imagine, uh, it is getting better. And I wonder whether that's going to enable a whole bunch more research in this space. But I'd love to hear from you about, like, just the, the, the practicalities of doing the kind of research that you did and how um, annoying it was. Yeah, that, um you know, I think that some of it is learning by doing. And so where we we kind of built up this corpus, which, um, you know, is over 30,000 episodes. And so that's a storage problem, right? So figuring out how to store all this stuff is um, a huge challenge, figuring out how to update it as new episodes come along. That's another challenge. In terms of the the transcripts, you know, I think that the tools have evolved to the point where this type of research is possible, where previously maybe it might not have been possible. And I'm talking about, you know, the transcription, the sort of speech to text methods to be able to actually get a good audio transcription, some of the natural language processing tools, um, sort of like fuzzy string matching, 
between the transcript and the false claim, things like that have all become more popular or evolved so that we can do this sort of search for the needle. Um, and so I think that that we're coming in at a good place from the, the tech side. Obviously, there are still um, sort of funny things that happen in the transcription sometimes, like I don't know, for the, the very discerning readers of the, the recent article, if you looked at the, the, the dictionary of terms that we use, you know, we had stop the steal, S-T-E-A-L, and stop the steal, S-T-E-E-L, because sometimes you'll get things like that where it shows up as steal versus to steal something. And so, you know, just being cognizant of some of those things is, is what we've kind of tried to to, to put into the research process a little bit to get around those little technical blips. But I, I would say that, you know, the methods and means to be able to do this type of research are, are certainly at, at a good place. So I'm curious what you expect to see in terms of podcast moderation and maybe what, what the response has been to your report, if you've seen a response. I, I noted that in the New York Times article summarizing your research, there is a, a quote from a Google spokesman saying, um, as as you both have described, that, you know, we just crawl and index audio content and they have policies against recommending podcasts containing harmful misinformation. And actually, just before we recorded this, I saw that... Um, Stuart Thompson, who's a New York Times reporter who covers disinformation, posted on Twitter about a new alert he found in his Google Podcasts app while trying to listen to a show that said, uh, this is a quote, Google Podcast does not host podcast content. When you play an episode, your IP address is shared with the hosting service for the podcast. So obviously that is framed to the user as an alert about data sharing, but it also seemed kind of notable that Google is, you know, directly telling its users that they're not hosting the podcast, kind of putting themselves at at arm's length. I'm, I'm so I'm curious, you know, if you expect that we'll see more of that, um, if you've gotten any interesting responses to your report from platforms, podcasters, anything like that. You know, we we haven't heard much from the the podcast architecture um, sort of the the tech companies that are that build the kind of scaffolding around these podcasts to be able to play them. We did get a bit of um, questions from some of the hosts, wondering, ah, why were we included? Things like that. You know, we we are very transparent. We are happy to share all data. We don't want to include anyone uh, in this data set, and so you know that was, I think, the the reaction was more on the podcaster side of can you can you give us examples of why we were included, as opposed to on the platform side. Yeah, um, one other thing I would add is you know these things often take time. I mean, I, I think we've already started to see, like you, you mentioned, the the snippet that Stuart shared. And, you know, I think if there is a positive response to this, or we do see forward movement from here, um, I think there'll be kind of two ways in which we'll see it. One will be involving kind of user interface design. So things like the pop-up that uh, Stuart flagged on Twitter, where uh, there's kind of greater transparency to the user about what's going on in the podcast ecosystem. I also think that you'll probably start to see a more robust set of tools, hopefully, um, by which... uh, uh, users can re- you know report or respond to uh, problematic content within podcasts to different podcast hosts. There's some of that now, but it's really immature. It, it's kind of where like you know if you found something problematic on you know Twitter or a major kind of social media network in like the late 2000s, there there you know there's some way to get attention to it, but not not nearly 
that that ecosystem and that infrastructure wasn't nearly as developed as it is now. And I think the podcasting space is in a somewhat similar place in terms of the user interface uh, for reporting. The other area that I would say hopefully we'll see some some improvement on is just transparency, both transparency around guidelines, you know, podcasts, uh, podcast apps have for for why and, and when they'll distribute uh, certain kinds of content and not others. Um, and then transparency about how they're actually uh, upholding that uh, content. We've seen this kind of play out a number of times, starting with kind of things like CSAM and then terrorist content and then you know, disinformation content on uh, social media. Hopefully we'll see a similar trajectory here with some of the major players in the space. Yeah, I really like a lot of the examples that you just gave, and in particular, the the, the dis- description of podcast content moderation and the ecosystem more generally is sort of immature in the sense that it doesn't even have a lot of the architecture or interfaces that we're used to in dealing with with content moderation, like the ability to flag things, you know, in, in any kind of nuanced way. Like I myself am a little hesitant to sign up for the idea that we want exactly the same kind of standards or content moderation in all spaces. I do think that a lot of these the media are really, really different and the role of the different platforms is really different and the fact that it doesn't go viral or isn't necessarily recommended in the same way um, means that we might think of a different level of responsibility, although of course that does change once apps start recommending things and monetizing. But it certainly seems like one of the things that I'm excited about as well is just getting out of this takedown, leave up paradigm in podcasts as well. You were talking about this before as well, Chris, like the idea that we in the past few years have started to see more experimentation on the other social media platforms with remedies, I guess, for content moderation violations that aren't just, you know, remove the post entirely. And that might be more difficult in the podcast space. You know, it's not so easy to like, uh, you know, you don't necessarily want voiceovers coming in in the middle of the podcast saying, you know, this claim has not been verified. But you can think of other ideas um, and sort of little pop-ups. So, you know, we have, for example, the explicit content warning, which, you know, shows how platforms uh, respond to the incentives that are most acute to them, like parents and, and, and uh, explicit content warnings for advertisers and things. Um, but thinking more about how uh, podcast platforms might be more innovative in those kinds of tools uh, is really exciting to me. Uh, yeah, Valerie. Yeah, and I would say, you know, the kind of take down, leave up paradigm won't work for podcasting simply because if it's on the RSS feed, it's available elsewhere. And so it's not as if removing it from Apple's catalog can remove it from the internet. And so if I really wanted to listen to that episode, I could just plug in this URL into any kind of RSS reader and I could get that episode immediately. And so that that sort of, it's kind of like whack-a-mole in the sense that you can you can just go get it elsewhere. And so that's, I think, what makes podcasting and that kind of process really challenging and and what makes these sort of more innovative strategies potentially um, really, really valuable. I, I really appreciate your point that the the whatever kind of, you know, user interface designs that are developed or, um, you know, mechanisms for, you know, enabling better and more mature kind of moderation of, uh, of the podcast space, you know, I... I would hope it takes into account the unique features of that space, right? I, I don't think we want a one size fits all, both for kind of content moderation guidelines, but also for how they're, you know, enforced across, the, you know, or or how kind of the reporting happens across, you know, different platforms. I, I think we'll really need to kind of focus on 
what it is that's unique about podcasts and what you know what kind of best UI and best you know guidelines we want to develop for podcasts specifically as opposed to just trying to take a cookie cutter approach and, and replicate what we've done elsewhere. Yeah, and so to take a sort of a somewhat different tack, or maybe this actually is a nice follow on from that, I don't know, maybe you could tell me, but you've also done some research, Chris, on, you know, the rise of digital authoritarianism. And I'm curious for how that informs your thinking about, you know, research on mis and disinformation in various spaces, because obviously one of the, the tools that we've seen digital authoritarians use in recent years is the co-optation of the discourse in liberal democracies, you know, including uh, European countries like Germany and, of course, the United States and claims about fake news to themselves justify imposing uh, draconian internet regulations that sort of formally look very similar to um, other laws around the world, but are, of course, enforced in ways um, very differently um, and infringe on their citizens' freedom of expression. And so I'm curious when you're doing this kind of research or when you're thinking about these questions about the problems of mis- and disinformation in these ecosystems and within the United States, how your sort of international and broader perspective informs that work. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, I, and thank you for bringing that work up, because I think it does inform a lot of how I tend to view this space and what kind of good content moderation practices might look like, um, particularly not just in uh, podcasts, but just writ large. And I, I think I think there's kind of two points I would make when it comes to uh, podcasting and then specifically and then one broader point uh, about just moderation in general, and especially when it comes to, to recommended content and the distribution of content. On podcasting in general, you know, this is where I think uh, to the, the point that you raised and I just kind of foot stomped, what's so valuable to me about podcasting um, is, you know, as, as we were talking about earlier, like there's a kind of intimacy to it. There's a there's an added trust to it. And one of the ways that I think that that's engendered is that podcasting is one of those rare formats where you're actually able to just kind of traverse somewhat spontaneously a full on idea space. Right. It's kind of similar to. Uh, rather than writing an essay, you're going to have, you know, you're, gonna, you're literally going to have a conversation with somebody. And you're not necessarily sure where it's going to go in advance. And, you know, podcasts are really, if you don't have the freedom to, you know, really explore a wide set of ideas, it you, even more so, I would say, in some ways than text, like if you're going to massively moderate that and crack down on it, uh, it's going to impact podcasts more, more so than other spaces, just because it, it kind of defeats the purpose to some extent of what having a robust kind of free-flowing conversation is even for in the first place. Um, and so I, I think if we do develop, you know, content moderation practices, you know, an, an example of this would be um, like Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. I have gone back and forth on my own thoughts about what, you know, if I were a benevolent dictator for a day or whatever, you know, like what, what would be the ideal outcome for society with that regard to that podcast in which, you know, it's got over a hundred million downloads um, at this point. Um, it is massively successful. It is also really unabashedly, even to this day, claiming that the election was stolen and kind of casting doubt on the legitimacy of American democracy. And, you know, the, the way that I tend to think about it is, you know, when it comes to podcasts, do you want this to be available at all anywhere online? Do you want this to be available within a specific podcast app? And then do you want this to be recommended by the app? And this is kind of something I was getting at earlier, which is that I think the, the criteria for answering each of those questions should be different. I would say even as problematic as I find Bannon's content, that first question, I don't think it should be taken down, right? And I think whereas, you know, I think there's, if you really want it to be 
full on in terms of moderating uh, election disinformation, you know, I, I would imagine that there's probably some folks that would like to see, say, even, you know, let's get this off the internet entirely. And I'm not sure I'm really prepared to go there. I am prepared to say if you are Apple or you know, Google Podcasts or whoever, you should probably have a good reason for why you're keeping it up that is you know, coherent and consistent uh, across all the podcasts that you're hosting and is consistent with your values as a company. And you know, I, I certainly have my feelings about what that, you know, whether Bannon would meet that criteria for many uh, platforms. But I, I do think there's an important question to ask about whether some of these podcasts and just kind of whether it's worth preserving a space for even odious ideas to be uh, floated uh, at all online. And I'm not quite sure I'm ready to go there with podcasts specifically with a, with an, with a podcast like Bannon's. The, the other point that I wanted to raise, which is less unique to podcasts uh, and is more about just kind of content moderation guidelines for recommendation systems, which is a, a really, I think, hopefully one of the things that our work um, has done on with respect to podcasts, to just flag the fact that these recommendation systems do exist uh, within the podcast uh, ecosystem. Um, it's not as simple as just kind of signing up and you know logging in and getting a URL and kind of fetching it on your app. That the apps, many of these apps, do push users towards certain podcast series. Uh, and something like Apple, there's two ways that that will happen, right? There's the the, the top 100 where they're recommending the most po- popular podcasts, which then become even more popular and it, it becomes something of a flywheel. But then there's also these apps uh, or the, within the you know, Apple, uh, and I think you know, many other podcast apps do this too. If you click on, an, on a podcast series and then go to the, the main page for that podcast series within the app, it will often recommend other, algorithmically recommend other podcasts that if you like this, we've noticed that you know, our users who like this podcast and listen to a lot also listen to these you know, four or five or 10 other podcasts too. And that's a... That's a form of uh, you know algorithmic recommendation that I think really we do want you know robust content moderation practices for, but where you know to bring this full circle to your question about digital authoritarianism, I'm probably a little bit outside of what I would call kind of the emerging mainstream when it comes to recommendation algorithms and what good transparency should look like there in the sense of like you know I think a, a Apple's recommendation system I think probably should fall somewhat under, say, like Nate Persley's recommendation uh, or like legislative proposal about what to do for, you know, algorithms and transparency around algorithms where, you know, he's proposed, I don't want to kind of butcher it too much or speak for him rather, but, you know, the, the idea is basically that there's a qualified set of researchers who would have access to, you know, how these uh, algorithms operate and be able to see how these algorithms operate in some form. Uh, in a way that doesn't compromise either user privacy or the proprietary uh, algorithms that, that platforms have developed. I have to say, just you know, trying to approach this issue from more of a global perspective, where as you're developing policies, you need to take into account that China or Turkey or some other kind of authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning state is going to take these policies and run with them. I get really skittish about giving uh, state-sanctioned researchers kind of almost power over kind of voting up or down over whether certain kind of, uh, and I, I realize it may not be the, the best characterization of uh, the legislation that, that's kind of floating around now, but I, I worry about giving researchers either outside government or within government a little bit too much power over some of these algorithms. It's not to say that there shouldn't be algorithmic transparency. I think there can be. Um, and I think it's just a question of kind of creating uh, the right kind of APIs that would allow kind of 
researchers to have access to them regardless of who they are, whether they're in the state or whether they're a qualified researcher. Um, I think they should be made public uh, at large. But the kind of like special access that either a government or um, a government affiliated uh, researcher might have, like that kind of thing, if, if we implement it here, it will be implemented elsewhere by regimes that I think we might find less than democratic and that we would um, probably have legitimate concerns about what kind of researchers they would give that same kind of power and infrastructure to. That's where uh, I would probably, researcher of digital authoritarianism starts to collide a little bit with uh, the listener of podcasts who wants kind of you know good content moderation practices. I'm glad you mentioned the War Room podcast by Steve Bannon because I, I wanted to actually close on that. So I know there, there's been recent reporting about how Bannon on his podcast, as you say, has really been using the show to continue the lie that the 2020 election was stolen and to foment anger about January 6th. And so I'm curious what you both think about whether podcasts like that will play a similar role, a similarly important role in spreading falsehoods as we go forward and head toward the 2022 midterms and the 2024 election, or whether maybe these falsehoods have actually become so widespread that podcasts are in a way less central. So for example, um, one of the really interesting things in your report was that, you know, these podcasts were putting forth election lies when networks like Fox were kind of staying away from that. On the other hand, now Fox and other more prominent right-wing outlets are themselves putting out these lies. So are podcasts less sort of crucial to the big lie as the mainstream right catches up to them? Or do they still are they still going to play a role in, in seeding election misinformation? I think I probably have sort of the, I'm putting on my political science hat here to answer that question. You know, my sense of this entire ecosystem, the information ecosystem, et cetera, places like Fox News, is that this type of misinformation, disinformation, polarizing content, things like that, it it festers and succeeds in environments outside of, you know, necessarily where the information is spreading based on things like gridlock in Congress, um, growing affective polarization, things like that. And so as long as those sort of root causes aren't things that are addressed as, you know, people aren't, you know, their paychecks aren't necessarily keeping up with uh, the cost of rent or things like that. As long as we're not seeing policies that are making people's lives better and politicians can decide to point the finger somewhere, build this sort of polarization, this affective partisan polarization, things like that, this type of content um, is going to have an audience both on podcasts and elsewhere. And I think, you know, the, the success of it will depend, I think, on the way the political environment involves and or evolves. And, you know, I, I don't see the political environment changing very much, uh, unfortunately. And so I, I do feel like there will be a role to play moving forward. I, I wish that we had nothing further to research, but we, we certainly will be continuing to look into this issue moving forward. Yeah, one thing I would just add on that, you know, I, I think um, podcasts will definitely be uh, an important part of the story going forward. And I think it's it's kind of like, you know, to paraphrase the saying that, you know, states are the laboratories of democracy. I think podcasts are to some extent the laboratories of, of mis- electoral misinformation, right? And I think you'll you'll start to see, you know, different stories and kind of different framings emerge on podcasts that then jump over into mainstream media outlets, especially on the, you know, right-wing mainstream media outlets. And so I, I don't see 
Uh, unfortunately, I don't see the podcast issue going away anytime soon. I think it'll be just as vital in, in 2022 and 2024 as it, as it has been in the last couple of elections. Well, we'll continue to look forward to reading your research on it. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Kara Schellen. Our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening. ACAST recommends more podcasts, more episodes, more great shows. Keep listening to hear a show we recommend. Hey friends, it's me, Sharon McMahon, longtime government and law teacher and host of the Sharon Says So podcast. Each week on Sharon Says So, I do a deep dive into fascinating historical stories state by state to share the history of America that you probably haven't heard. I bring you stories of espionage, sled dog heroes, presidential scandals, change makers, law defiers, and more. And weekly, I have some of the nation's most prolific thought leaders and creators. We talk about a huge variety of fascinating topics. New episodes of the Sharon Says So podcast are released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and are available on the Acast app or wherever you like to listen. Tune in and subscribe today for your fill of brain-tingling moments. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.